Second uh, text is Genesis chapter 44 and chapter 45. Like last week, we're doing two chapters at a time. Last week, 42 and 43. This week, 44 and 45. You are welcome to read through in your Bibles with me. Uh, but I have a suggestion, which is that you uh, listen along as a, as a story and hear this section of narrative unfold, as I suggested last week. So uh, uh, open uh, your ears now to hear God's word, for he, he speaks from his heavenly home, seated on the throne, speaks to us today, even through this uh, narrative story in Genesis. So hear now God's word, uh, Genesis chapter 44 and chapter 45. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent on their way with the donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell down before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you... Go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. 
Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For yet there are five years of famine to come, so that you, your household, and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry, and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. 
To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege that you have preserved it. Uh, through your spirit in, in history that it is before us today and that we have access to hear your wonderful words. Help us as we have great need uh, for your wisdom and power in order to understand the scriptures. So uh, teach us about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as it's testified to us in this narrative. Help us to love uh, you more deeply and edify your saints and build up your church through the preaching of your word. And so we ask that you'd be with us in power by your Holy Spirit this morning hour in Jesus name. Amen. I'd like you to think for me, think with me for a moment about a time where maybe you were told uh, these words, you just need to see the bigger picture. And what was your response to that? Well, I know as a boy, when I heard that from my dad, I thought I felt indignant and I felt patronized, almost like my concerns I was being told to ignore and gloss over and think about something bigger. But then I had a, another experience later in life in the, in the corporate world when somebody said to me, you need to think about the bigger picture. And I realized that this person had seen something which I had completely missed. So seeing the bigger picture is really a function of wisdom and insight and skill and learning and, and so on. And this is a little bit like the Christian life, that as Christians who have God's word, as Christians who have God's spirit, we are able to see beyond just the fact that X, Y, and Z happened, but to see to a bigger picture of what God is doing both in history as testified in the scriptures, and in our lives now today. And we're going to see that because of God's sovereignty, as displayed in, in this text, because of God's sovereignty, we have true power for the Christian life. We are able to be forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ, and we are able to forgive others for their sins. And in our text, we're going to see that because of God's sovereignty, those who deserve wrath end up receiving mercy. Mercy in God's plan here triumphs over judgment in his covenant family. And we're going to see that mercy characterizes the ruler of this, this, this covenant family, uh, Joseph, which has been, who's been sent ahead of his brothers. So this text really is about coming to grips with God's providence. Now, we know so far that from the last two chapters, Joseph has seen his brothers, and so he set up a series of tests because he wanted to know, can I trust them? Have they changed? 
Are they repentant for throwing me into the pit and selling me as a, as a slave into slavery? And they passed those tests and they had a, a meal together. But Joseph now has one more test, a final test, a test with the greatest temptation. Because not only are they going to be offered uh, silver like in the last test, but they're going to be offered freedom from the terrible consequences of stealing uh, Joseph's goods. Well, Joseph plays along with his role and says uh, through the servant, is this not the cup from which I drink? And is this not the cup from which, by which I practice divination? As, as Christians, we should go, whoa, why is Joseph practicing divination? Has he, has he capitulated to the gods of Egypt? Has he become, has he been the opposite of Daniel? Has he, has he just been infected by their culture? Well, no, he's playing a role here. They don't know who he is yet. So he's playing his part of this uh, Egyptian uh, powerful ruler. Not to say that he's actually practicing divination, which God clearly uh, forbids. But this, this test is a, a very effective one because it gets the brothers to think again. And this time they say, well, wait, we bought the silver back last time. So why would we steal silver now? That, that can't be the case. So if anyone here is, is guilty... Kill that person. It's almost like a flippant thing. Like, of course we haven't done this. But to their dismay, and with building of tension, they are searched one by one, again from oldest to youngest. And the tension builds. And probably so did their confidence. See? Of course we didn't take it. Of course we didn't take it. And then the cup is discovered in beloved Benjamin's sack. And now, in their eyes... They've killed Benjamin again. <laughs> in, the, in the last time, there, there was the possibility of Benjamin being left there uh, by, by himself. And now they've taken their father's final son. And they are in absolute dismay. So they said, no. Uh, it says they tore their clothes in, in shock. They've, they've lost their brother. This is the mourning activity. This is what you do when someone has died. They tore their clothes as if they've lost their brother. And every man loaded his donkey and they came back to Joseph. And this is typically what the narrator does. He's uh, describing these situations that remind us of what we've been building up towards. What happens? The brothers fall on their faces again in front of Joseph. Again fulfilling Joseph's dream that his brothers would bow down to him. Now that he then says, why would you do such a thing? Am I not able to practice divination? So he continues playing his role, not yet letting them know who he is. But what, look at the brother's response in, in verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? Listen to this. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Well, that's interesting because they know that they didn't take the cup. But this is similar to the last two chapters where because of these tests, their consciences have been pricked about their true sin, which was that they dealt wickedly with their brother Joseph in the face of his cries for mercy and that they remained unrepentant for 20 years and that they let their father languish in sorrow. They had no regard for the evil that had been brought upon him by them. They didn't care. And so they're interpreting these consequences again as God being after them. God has found out the guilt because they know that they are guilty. 
But they say, what we are, my Lord's servants, um, but what can we do? How can we clear ourselves? Take all of us as servants, rather. But Joseph says, no, 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 I couldn't do that. Only one of you is guilty. So I'm going to keep the youngest, the one whose hand the cup was found, and he shall be my servant. But the rest of you, go in peace to your father. This is a test. Are the brothers going to leave their brother again? The final test. Joseph has made it worse. I'm going to keep the, I'm going to keep the favorite one. And the brothers have heard that their father said, if you do not return with him, my hair, my, the grayness of my hairs will go down with evil to Sheol. Meaning his life in his eyes will be over and he should just die. So what will Judah do now? Judah in the past had been the one who suggested that they sell um, Joseph into, into slavery. But, but now he had promised that he, he promised his own father that he would take responsibility for the boy. And what we get now from verse 18 is actually the longest speech recorded in the book of Genesis. It's an extraordinary speech where Judah goes up to Joseph in extraordinary deferential language. He calls him my Lord and he calls himself his, the Lord's servant. And he says, let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. You are like a God. And this deferential language is, again, just another fulfillment of Joseph's dream that his brothers would come bowing down before him. But what does he do now? What does Judah say? Well, in this, we get a striking parallel of what the offspring of Judah down the line one day, the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah would do. Here, Judah expresses his concern for his father. He mentions his father 14 times in this speech. And he mentions how much he loves Benjamin. Now, this was the problem before. These men despised their father because, firstly, their father had not treated them well. But they came to a point where they, they were so calloused, so hardened in their sin, that they didn't care at all about Joseph or their father. But now, this is a total change in tenor. Judah went from being completely jealous of the youngest brother to caring for his father. And so much so he repeats his father's words that his father only has two sons and one of them is dead. Now, if someone said to my parents, do you have kids? And they say, yes, we have a wonderful daughter. Like, how am I going to feel <laughs> about that? <laughs> like, don't, 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 don't mind me. Well, that's essentially what these brothers have experienced their whole lives. The daughters of the wife that I love uh, and the rest of the sons of the wife that I love, the rest of the sons, you know, whatever, they're, they're just around. But he even seems to embrace this reality and just say, Benjamin means so much to my father. I can't far be it from me to go back without him and bring this evil upon him. He has regard for the life of his father now. And what does he do? He offers for himself to become a slave in place of Benjamin. Judah offers to substitute himself into slavery for the rest of his life until he dies for the life of his brother. This is a, quite a consideration that he wants Benjamin to be reconciled to his father and his father to be reconciled to his son. 
But what we see here is real substitution, a love that is actually sacrificial. And these words now come out of the mouth of Judah. Well, Joseph now knows what scriptures later describe, that greater love has no man than he who lays his life down for his brother. And for Joseph, this means that he can tell they really have changed. And especially Judah, who's become this more representative leader for the brothers. So after this long speech, Joseph has been able to authenticate that his brothers are not the same men that they once were. And so what's his response? Well, he knows now they can be reunited. So he kicks everyone else out and he weeps so much that the nation hears him cry out to his brothers and say, I am Joseph. This wail of relief that he can now reveal himself and know that he can trust these brothers and be reconciled to them. But what is the brother's response? Well, they see how their brother responds and they are stunned, silenced, most likely with fear. You see, they were dismayed at his presence. Now, he'd been present with them a lot over the last couple of chapters. So what's changed? What do they mean by presence? Well, Joseph as he is, not Joseph as this unknown ruler in Egypt, but Joseph, their brother, has just appeared before them as if from the dead. Because remember, they hadn't recognized him up to this point. And now suddenly, they are, they are able to see that this is their brother. And they go white as sheets, dismayed at his presence. They probably thought, this is the most powerful man in the land. He's about to get his revenge. He's going to kill us. But what does he do? He says, I am Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. I mean, that's, that'll be hitting hard. But... What's his response? Come near to me, please. Don't stay far over there as is appropriate, as differential space between ruler and servants. Come near to me. And they came near. And he says, I am Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And listen to this with these words of comfort. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Isn't that extraordinary? He says, in the face of their shame and dismay, come near. Now, th these words come to us from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And what you'll notice in the Christian life is that there are a lot of people who, who never move past uh, dismay. They, they, they want to continue to punish themselves by remaining in the shame and the guilt of the revelation of the God that they have uh, betrayed and sinned against. Maybe that's in part because people have told others that Christianity is a religion about feeling bad for what you've done and that's it. Uh, maybe it's because people think that deep down they really still have to atone for their sins. It's not possible that someone else can atone for my sins. I have to atone for my sins. But through Joseph's response and ultimately through Christ's response, we see that this is not the right way to think about it. In fact, one cannot atone for one's own sins. And the kind of 
good news of forgiveness that comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ is the kind that covers and dispels shame such that it no longer exists. So when you come here to church on a Sunday, you don't have to sit with a face white with dismay because God has said, come near because of the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Well, Joseph gets this impulse that those who have repented must now be reconciled. And that's why he says, come near. So think of this for yourself. Maybe as Joseph's brothers did, you feel a crushing despair and a weight of guilt, either by unconfessed sin or because you don't think you deserve the forgiveness that's offered in Christ. But that's the whole point, is we cannot deserve the forgiveness that's offered in Christ. Christ earns for you the kind of rest that allows you to come near to your father. Well, this is shocking. If you put yourself in Joseph's position, how is it possible that a person who has been treated this way, chucked in a hole, left for dead, and then sold into slavery, that you could forgive the people who did that? And especially when the person who's speaking to you as the representative of this group is the one who suggested that you be sold as a slave in the first place. There's no bitterness in Joseph. How is that possible? Well, in forgiving people, you are free to love them and to see the bigger picture of God's providence and how God is working. And we can unpack that a little bit. But this doesn't mean that the brothers didn't sin. But when you forgive others as Christ has forgiven you, you free yourself from the prison of hatred and bitterness in which you, which you build for yourself in unforgiveness. Uh, why I mentioned that what he saw was the bigger picture of providence. Well, that's clear in how he interprets this because he says, don't be angry at yourselves for what you did, for God sent me down here. That's quite a, that's quite a shocking statement. God sent me before you. Meaning your evil was also providentially God working out his good plan. Isn't that shocking? And your evil God used to protect you. Your evil against me, God has used to protect you. To, that Joseph says he's going to preserve the life of the covenant family in his position of ruler in Egypt. The point is that whatever happens in the working out of history, the Lord is the one working it out. The Proverbs say quite clearly that we plan our ways in our heart, but that the Lord directs our steps. This is what the Bible teaches, that God is sovereign. And he's not only powerful, but he's wisely and intricately ordering the details of your life. And this belief in the teaching of, of, of the Bible will completely change your life and your experience of faith. Because while it does mean that we will continue in this life until glory to experience pain, the hand of the Lord is able to redeem. And not only redeem, but to use everything that happens to us and everything you do for your good, for the good of his people, and to bring him glory. Now, you've probably heard people say, well, we just don't know why things happen. 
Well, that's true in one sense. There's a hidden will of God. We don't know the reason that God does everything. But it's, it's also not true in a way because we know that things happen because God is working things out for our good and for his glory. And if God is sovereign and loves us, then we truly have no need to fear anything in this life. Uh, as Reformed Christians, we are often accused of having a kind of cold, rationalistic view of God's sovereignty as if it's just some doctrine that we're obsessed with and, uh, and want to assert in coldness. And uh, like a case or whatever will be, will be, and uh, it's a cold, hard determinism. Well, that really is a complete misrepresentation, misrepresentation firstly, of what we believe and confess in our, in our catechisms and confessions, but it's very clearly different from what the Bible uh, teaches. See, the Bible teaches everywhere that God is sovereign. There's no way to get around that. Our God is in the heavens. He does everything that he pleases. So it doesn't matter what your individual doctrine is. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign. But that sovereignty is not, does not make God this capricious actor who acts without regard for his people or acts without righteousness or justice or holiness. Those things are all intertwined in who God is. And this doctrine of God's sovereignty that Everything in life happens because God has purposed it is actually one of the most beautiful things about God. It really is. And uh, one of our uh, professors in seminary, I read something that he wrote in, in his book describing why this doctrine of God's sovereignty or his aseity, his otherness from his creation is so important. And he says this, listen carefully. If it were not for God's aseity, his transcendence, his sovereignty, we could pray for him, but we couldn't pray to him. Because only a God, sovereign God can be prayed to. Because only a sovereign God can answer your prayers. God is not like Baal, wrestling with the elements and wrestling with other gods. God is like no other gods because he's the only true one. He says all the other gods of the earth are worthless idols that need to eat and drink and whatever. But our God is in the heavens. And so this is a doctrine to, when you see it in practice, to treasure and reflect on, is this how you think of God? And is this how you talk to God as not only the sovereign one, but the sovereign one working everything out for his glory and for your good? So meditating on God's sovereignty is to see the bigger picture, which allows Joseph to say these things. What, it is because of this doctrine of God's sovereignty that he is able to look his betraying brothers in the eye and to forgive them and to reunite with them. That's incredible. So when we say we can see the bigger picture by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is not stoic philosophy. This is redemption. God's power at work in our lives and in history. And if you believe this and accept this and treasure this and pray according to this, then we can accept and trust the hand of God is working in our lives for our good. And that he will accomplish everything that he has purposed and promised to do. Later today, we're going to confess together what we see in the, in the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm just going to read it now and we'll read it again later. But 
is really important here. What do you understand by the providence of God is the question. And the answer is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. That allows us to look beyond the limitations of the actions of other people. Not passing over their sins, but understanding that ultimately God is working. So the Westminster Confession of Faith says that God from all eternity did, by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And that Truth enabled Joseph to see those who sinned against you, him and give them mercy instead. And because of God's sovereign hand, mercy can triumph over judgment. And that is extraordinary. He can forgive his brothers 70 times 7. And that applies to us as those who have been offended against. But what if you are also the perpetrator? Well, this doctrine is also good news for you because even through your sin, which you have committed, God is able to redeem that and to work that for your good in such a way that being sinned against and being a sinner cannot obstruct God's plan in history and in your lives. And out of this is birthed a beautiful reality that forgiveness ultimately leads to restoration. And that's what Joseph does. He connects again with his brothers, embraces them, and says, go and get dad. Go up, tell him the good news, and bring him down. And the rest of you, the, you will live because God has sent me here. Essentially, as a, as a kind of redeemer of the covenant family to preserve their lives through the drought. Communication has, once there was this wall, remember earlier in the chapters, there was an interpreter between them. Uh, now they speak face to face. And we all know that this is the result of forgiveness when we have sinned against others or they've sinned against us and there's forgiveness there's reconciliation, and for the first time again, you can talk. There's a clearing in the air. Something's changed. Well, that's what we see in the lives of the covenant family here. Well, they go and they tell their father, Jacob. But he's overwhelmed. In fact, he's numb. He can't really believe it. And this is much like the disciples when Jesus rose from the dead. They couldn't believe it. And not only could they not believe it, but there was also shame and fear. Uh, think of uh, Peter who had denied his Lord three times and then brings him to confess that he loves his Lord three times. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so he, he says, don't be afraid. What's the first thing he does when he appears to them in the room? He says, do not fear. 
So ultimately, we see in this that, the, that Pharaoh now joins in with a celebration of reunion of this family and says, yes, take great gifts up to them and then bring them down and you're going to eat of the fatness of, of the land. Uh, so certain is this uh, provision of uh, what they're going to need in the years ahead. But we also get a forecast of some irony here because think of the ease with which this covenant family is entering the land and under the blessing of the hand of Pharaoh and contrast that with some time to go, but how difficult it's going to be for them to leave the land of Egypt and think of the contrasting Pharaoh and how he will treat them on the exit. But yet, what's the key? The Lord had sent him ahead to prepare a place for this family. As we move to this, we see that the father, Jacob, or Israel, now says, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before he dies. When, when forgiveness takes place, what's extraordinary is that relationships get restored. Uh, gifts are given here. And the, what, the person who'd offered to be the ransomed uh, brother is in a gift of mercy uh, set free to go and reunite with his family. And the thing that caused all of this in the first place, his dream that he would be ruler over his brothers is now great cause for celebration. For because he rules over them, they will live. And for us as Christians, as, although the New Testament makes no direct uh, application or connection between uh, Joseph and Christ and between Judah and uh, Christ in this, in this passage, there are some essential things for us to see here and understand what's happened in, in redemptive history and how these were prefigures, forerunners to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, just as, as Judah offered himself as a substitute to go into, into slavery, Judah's greater son and the father's love for him will mean that he gave himself up for a people. And in this text, he offers himself as a substitute, but here the guilty is the substitute. He is guilty of sin against his brother, and he offers to go in as the substitute and for the innocent to go free. It is turned on its head in the Lord Jesus Christ. How much a greater sacrifice of substitution that the innocent one should offer himself as a substitute for those who are guilty and to enter into imprisonment, slavery, and death for them. But it is through that very thing that the Father is reconciled to the people that he loves. And the Lord Jesus Christ proved his love for us as his people, and so earned us as his bride. And through this, and we reflect on this carefully, that because of this substitution that, that Jesus made for us, as guilty ones, we went free, and as innocent ones, he was imprisoned unto death. Because of this substitute, God can now look us in the face as those who have offended him and say, come near. That by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our whole lives as lives of betrayal and suppression of the truth, 
are completely changed because of Christ. And the, the gospel really is the antidote to the fear, the fear that when we, when we see our sin through the law as a mirror, that we would be white with fear and be ashamed. But no, the gospel is the antidote to this fear because the gospel says, come for communication, for communion, for fellowship, for love, for riches, for food, for life. And if you look to your right, this table of the Lord's Supper is a ratification, a certification, a proof to you that you can come near to the Lord and that it will be safe for you to do so. That you do not have to fear because God is no threat to those who turn from their sin. Instead, he becomes the gracious and merciful, merciful king who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin and grants life to those who deserve death. And all of this was made possible because in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus Christ saw the bigger picture. He said, if possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, only by the power of the Holy Spirit as the God-man, as the Messiah, could he take that cup. Those brothers could not drink the, the cup of judgment. They were not able to. They were not righteous. Their sin could not be atoned for by themselves. Only Christ, the God-man, could drink this cup. He could drink the cup of wrath as he interpreted it. And that's through this, John 14 says that Jesus has, has gone to prepare a place for us in heaven. And yet he meets with us at this table from heaven and, and lifts us up to him by the power of the Spirit as a promise that that place has been reserved for you as his people. This meal has been prepared. And he says to you, do not quarrel on the road. Do not speak amongst yourselves in guilt and shame and condemnation, but receive the forgiveness of sins because your sins are as far from you as the east is from the west. It's done behind you. And so instead, instead of having to drink a cup of wrath for atonement, you come and drink a cup of reconciliation because Christ drank that cup of wrath. And at this table, our impulse to feel guilt and shame and condemnation is overturned. And in its place is the blessedness and joy of the forgiveness of sins, fellowship with the Father, and fellowship as restored brothers and sisters among one another. That is the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a redemption, what forgiveness, what communion, what reunion and fellowship, uh, what glory is seen in the, in the gospel where at its very crux is your hand of providence that, that those uh, who betrayed the Lord Jesus uh, were yet accomplishing your purpose as you sent him as our substitute and that you were pleased to accept him on our behalf to, uh, to punish for our sins. That you may pour out on us, not wrath, uh, but your love, your affection. 
and that you receive us with uh, open arms rejoicing, that we all may be full of joy, full of confidence, with no fear, no guilt, no condemnation, but knowing that Christ was sent ahead to prepare a place for us, that he was sent ahead even through his betrayal uh, to bring life for his many brothers, among whom, uh, by your grace, uh, we are uh, most blessed to count ourselves. So help us to uh, glorify you for this, to meditate on this this day, that you have saved all those who repent of their sins and, cr- and trust in you, and that this would uh, propel us with power into the week, proclaiming your glory day to day and giving an account of the hope that is in us but to those who may ask us about it. We praise you as our one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.